You're listening to a special episode of the Doggeritaville podcast. Come unleash and unwind as we invite other dog professionals to our yappy hour. Here are guests from the show by picking not only the beverage, but their favorite dog topic as well. So grab a yummy cocktail, get comfy in your best chair, and join us for a chat. And as always, welcome to Doggeritaville. Welcome to the Doggeritaville Yappy Hour, where we unleash and unwind with other dog professionals. Today's Yappy Hour guest is Dr. Amy Cook, a professional dog trainer and applied animal behaviorist located in Oakland, California. Amy, welcome to Doggeritaville. Hi, thanks for having me. It's such a a pleasure to be on your podcast. I can't wait to get started. Amy is on TikTok, as all of my guests (laughs) so far have been as Amy Cook, PhD, and I highly recommend following her there, especially if you're a dog trainer, because she always has informative videos for other dog professionals. I learn something new basically every time she posts a video. And Amy, I don't believe you chose a Yappy Hour beverage today. Is that correct? Um, You know, my beverage of choice uh, is almost always a Diet Dr. Pepper. And it's funny because people (laughs) who have me out for like seminars and stuff, they always know to have like a steady supply in the fridge. Um, My running joke is that it's the drink of doctors and we are, are actually contractually obligated to, to drink it because it is, you know, it's the only, the only drink with doctor in its name. Right. Um, But that's my, I have a a can glued to my hand. So it is, it is so me. Anyone who's out there listening, you know, that is the drink I drink. That's what I have for us today. (laughs) Diet Dr. Pepper. I love it. So yep. Laura and I just recorded a podcast last night that was guava-themed margaritas. So I'm making use of the guava rum I bought. I just put it into some pineapple juice, and it's amazing. I really love guava. That's really just, you know, I'm from Hawaii originally, and that's one of my kind of my home flavors, you know? So that sounds delicious. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. What island? Um, Oahu mostly, but I lived on the Big Island as well. Beautiful. I've never been to the Big Island, but I'd really like to go. Totally. So the first segment that we have here, I don't know if you've listened to the podcast before, but Laura and I are both just a little bit aggressive people. So our first segment is titled, Who Do You Think You Are and What Gives You the Right? And it's basically just our aggressive way of introducing you to our audience. And the first question we have for you here, you can answer to whatever length you want to, because I know you have an extensive answer to this question. But who are you in the dog world is our first question for you. Who am I in the dog world? Good Lord. I almost feel like, um, you know, constitutionally unable to, to toot my own horn. So um, <laughs> I really want other people to tell me who they think I am in the dog world. I'm just a person in the corner of the internet. Um, I've been a dog trainer for forever and ever and ever. And um, just making me my living that way, as most of us do. And at some point I went to grad school and that's a too long of a story unless anybody really wants me to unpack it but I I went um to be able to study dogs and so that's what I did and instead of going from there back into academia I I wanted to come right back out into the dog world um and continue to you know do the work I'd already been doing and just with a a different I was going to say a deeper understanding but it's really just a different understanding of what dogs do and how they navigate the world and what our co-evolutionary story is and all of that so um 
really have just been boots on the ground dog trainer that got a stint in academia. Um, I feel like I, I usually say that I uh, took one for the team. You know, I got the PhD for the team and then now I come back and, and can contribute what I learned uh, to, for the, for the rest of us all. And I, is that what gives me the right? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> does that give me the right to say dog stuff? I hope it does. I hope it does. <laughs> of all of the people that we've had on the podcast, I feel the very weirdest about asking you what gives you the right. <laughs> like, everything right. gives you the I right, like, basically. Right. Like, I can just say, well, listen here. You know what gives me the right? My PhD gives me the right. But, you know, the thing is, uh, you know, and of course, that's a joke. And I assume people would take that as the joke it would be meant to be. But. It doesn't, right? It, what it what it gave me was s- smart questions. Hmm. <laughs> what it gave me was a way to organize how we can go about getting answers. But you know, it didn't. I didn't, you know, go into PhD school, uh, you know, a, not knowing anything about dogs and come out being a dog expert. It just yeah. isn't quite you know, doesn't quite do that to you. So it ends up giving you more questions than answers in a lot of ways. But um, I really enjoyed the time I could take. I was there for a long time. I was there about eight years or so or nine years. And I, um, that's a long time to sit in the library and read about what we know about dogs. It's a long time to sit and explore 10 seemingly tangential or at least, you know, um, somewhat related material that, that, allowed me to broaden my perspective. I could look into child literature. I could look into, you know, therapy literature. I could look into evolution. I could look into other animals. I could look into um, babies. I looked a lot into the development of human children. Hmm. Um, And that all really enriched the kinds of questions I ask and the kinds of ways that I both treat dogs and treat people. So like it, it helped me a lot, but it isn't like I now know why dogs might pee on the bed, you know, <laughs> it's right. like, it's not from a spite, but it's not like I know what they're doing. <laughs> you know, so it's kind of both, both directions. You can take that. One of the things that I run into so often when I am researching anything in the dog world, because there's so much information out there and so much of it is conflicting. Right. So the problem that I run into is where do I even look for the answer and who do I trust? So do you feel like that formal education helped you kind of weed that out, where to look for information and who to trust? That's an interesting question. It allows me, trying to think if this is really true, if this is really how I think of it, it allows me to sort better through the thought processes people contribute. It allows me to see a little bit more through BS. Um, although I don't know that that you need to have this training to be able to see through BS, but it allowed me to be able to better see through BS. Um, people make a lot of claims. People say, this dog is in the seeking system and therefore he's going to, and I'm like, oh, that's not how it <laughs> works. Um, so I, I have a better BS meter. But what it what it makes you do because it because everything has to be qualified when you're when you're doing this at an academic level everything has to be couched everything has to be it could be this you know this is a speculation that makes sense there is some evidence that points to this it's we we don't walk around and say well I proved that or this is why they do that it's not the way academics speak so when I kind of see people posing answers to things or x is always wrong or y is always the right thing to do or when you do that this will happen i i'm just a much more natural skeptic now around you know these these strong statements so um i'm much more used to looking for 
the things that could be possible and allowing them to be what I speculate about, allowing them to be what we hold up as a possibility. But you can't marry an idea just because it sounds like a good one. And always being able to devil's advocate, if you will, and try to look at the other side and see, is there any kind of truth to the other way to look at this? And what's the evidence on both sides? It kind of allows you not to have a strong opinion about a lot of things, which is which is which which can be strange. But um, if there are things I don't know, you know, what I do know is that we don't know a lot of what we'd like to know. The kinds of things people ask me that clients might ask or clients might ask all of us, like, why does my dog do, how come dogs, you know, always greet by sniffing butts? I'm kind of like, the science doesn't really have, you know, we have speculation, but it's not like we have an answer. So I think it's helped me to sort, sort out the things that have, that are reasonable to ask for answers to and things that are, this will always be in the land of, of speculation and experience. And so it's best for us to, to use our guiding principles and use good ethics when making those decisions because we don't have facts on our side and facts are not likely to come. It helps me to sort out those kind of things. That's really interesting because that's actually how a lot of dog information is presented. It's like, you know, science has told us this, (laughs) but then you talk to Amy Cook or someone like Inglenook or Jackie from Dog Sense and they're like, no, it hasn't. It hasn't. (laughs) It hasn't. Or, you know, or even if it looks kind of sewn up in that we've seen several studies pointing to certain things, it's, you know, I did studies. They, they, they're often there's they're skating on very thin ice and they're only meant to do that we can only find tiny pieces of tiny things and and add it to the large body of material and you know any one finding is not to be taken out and 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 used you know i in the work i did i found that dogs will prioritize their owner's information over a stranger's information even when their owner's information is wrong even when it's consistently wrong they still bias towards their owner and what should never happen from that is that anyone conclude that dogs always bias toward owner because it was really just more often than chance it wasn't that every dog always did it it was that in aggregate more often than chance they did right and and we as lay people are not really prepared to both learn information like that and to put it in a very tentative space. Like we learn it and we learn it, you know, we, we, we learn it. We think that that's now a thing we learned. It's like, no, I learned a thing that's kind of interesting that should allow us to, to ask a new question. Uh, <laughs> I didn't learn like a fact about dogs or something. And the more I did that kind of thing, the more I was involved in more studies, the more I take that with me when I read studies i think okay this is just a neat little nugget this is not a thing that that should change the way we see dogs um but in the hands of you know popular media or in the hands of right of the telephone gamer gets passed around a lot things can get brought you know way out of proportion so so i'm you know i'm grateful that i yeah that i can read those things like that but it it can be frustrating (laughs) to kind of watch what the rest of the world does with information for sure yeah, absolutely. I can only imagine. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. and now I'm racking I'm my brain for-, for all the times that I've been like, this is what science has told us. And it's <laughs> like, oh, geez. Totally, totally. <laughs> and I'm, I'm frustrating at parties. Like, I'm that person who's trying not to say, well, actually, like, I'm trying <laughs> never to say that. And I'm sure I'm failing right and left. <laughs> not that I've been to a party. But I mean, I'm no fun at parties because it's like, dogs don't do that. <laughs> you know? <It's> like, Amy, <laughs> So our next question for you is, who are you when you're not working with dogs? I do not exist. 
<laughs> um, I cease to exist entirely, and I just wait for the next activation cycle when I get to work with dogs again. Um, I don't know. Who are any of us we're not working with dogs? Like, do I have a hobby? Is that essentially, do I have a hobby? Yeah, sure. I, well, you know, these are tough days, right? None of us seem to have hobbies anymore with mm with the way the world has gone. Um, I used to do a lot more things out of the house than I do. And so I've been trying to find more things to do inside the house. Um, but uh, I enjoy um, being physically fit. I exercise a lot. I really like to dance. Um, I like to I like to dabble in learning new things hmm. a lot um, with no particular interest in getting good at them. Oh. And I learned this a, a while ago and it really changed my life i mean that's that sounds dramatic but i mean it changed the way i thought about this kind of thing about learning stuff and um so now i just really 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 embrace it and what it is is that the point of doing something is not to get good at it the point of doing something mm. is to do it because doing something is really enriching and there's no extra value in you doing it better um than you did before or better than somebody else or as good as you wish you were there's this this great value in exploring how to do a thing or learning a new subject or whatever. So I dabble in a lot of stuff. I have one to two years of experience in so many things <laughs> because that's about as much as I want to do. You know, yeah. I play a lot of instruments badly. Hmm. You know, I, um, you know, I kind of knit and I can sort of build a few things and I just, I do them until they're done being interesting. And what I've kind of cobbled together from that is this sense of, I think, I think partly what it does is it keeps me connected to a new learner, which is what every one of my clients is going to be, right? Yeah. Every one of my students is going to be that. They, they don't know, like, you know, you're a dog trainer. You don't know, you know, no client knows what they're doing when they first get to you, right? Right. And if you're not used to that space of being really uncoordinated, feeling like you don't exactly know what's going on, um, you know, having someone teach you something and feeling what their judgment feels like as they're trying to teach you, if you're not kind of regularly in that novice space it's hard to stay really sympathetic to or, or it's hard for me to stay really sympathetic so I, I try to learn stuff I think I have no facility in I try to pick up stuff I I think would be really really hard just just to kind of stay sensitive to the frustration of the novice and to explore what it feels like to not know how to do something and to feel kind of okay with that um, I, I just love that space. So, so when I'm not dog training, I'm kind of, um, I'm following my nose into any interesting thing that shows up. And then I'm using that experience to kind of enrich, um, my sense of myself as a teacher, which is probably not what you were going for with the question, but that's where my brain went. <laughs> you're probably like, so what do you do when you're not dog training? And I'm like, still dog training. <laughs> Still thinking about dog no that's perfect i'm just trying to get a sense of who you are i don't want this to become a thing where we have guests on our dog podcast and people are just kind of reduced to what they do in the dog world so i'm just trying to get to know you so i think that's perfect and i really like that kind of empowering message because it's counter to everything that we're told and what we believe that you can just do things even if you're not good at them i really like that a lot right it's a, it's a very, it's a, it can be a controversial or a provocative message, right? And I, I certainly spent an early part of my life only wanting to do the things I was good at because that's sort of where, where I, what I came up from. You know, you give up if it's too hard or whatever. And, and uh, you know, not the growth mindset, but the, um, oh, I'm forgetting what the other one is. Uh, I'm forgetting the, the theorist that has that, but, um, you know, whether you enjoy the process 
or whether you just want to kind of prove to yourself that you're pretty good at something, right? And and um, I, if we have time for a small diversion, I was I studied martial arts for a really long time, and um, my teacher was very good at meeting people and seeing where they were in their process. And she used to, at the end of each class, kind of speak in general about things. But I remember at one point, um, uh, I felt that her general story was about what a moment we had had earlier in the class, which was that every time she'd go around, she'd walk up and down the rows. And when she'd get closer to me, I'd kind of do better. You know, I'd be like even more committed to the punch and like really showing off, not really, but like trying to be really good for the teacher. Right. And yeah, because that's just, everyone can relate to that. You're like, oh, oh she's close. I, you know, I, I'm not going to work it out. I'm going to really, really show how good I'm learning. You know, it feels like it's from a good place, right? Um, but her, her speech at the end was about what a gift it is to a teacher to, to show the things you don't understand, to show the parts that are not going well. Because if you're doing very well in front of your teacher, your teacher has nothing to give you. Um, and so they move on, right? <laughs> and, and, you know, it was essentially this, you know, a kind way to put the idea of like, it, it doesn't mean anything to show off to me. I'm, I'm your teacher. I want you to show me what, you know, what you don't know. I want you to, you know, it, it doesn't, you know, it's a gift to me when you show me the things you don't know, because then I can give you what, what I'm good at. And, and it really shifted in that moment, it totally shifted the way I think about learning and how it is not it, you not being able to do something is not the thing you hide. It's the thing you show so that you are able to get gifts from other people who can contribute to your performance. If you really mostly show all the things you're good at, people just go, wow, that's great. And they kind of move on and, and, and I don't, it doesn't enrich you as much. So um, it really took away the burden of feeling like I have to be great at stuff. Um, and and I think in dog training, boy, that really helps because people think trainers' dogs are perfect and that we do everything right and we don't make mistakes. And that's just nothing could be further from the truth. I'm sure I made one today. I was trying to make a TikTok and I screwed everything up. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> the amount of times that happens to me, like I do puppy head start here. So every once in a while, I try to send a video update to their family of like what the dog has learned this week. And then I start to take the video yeah. and the puppy's like, what are you talking about? I didn't learn anything this week. And it's like, Ugh, that always happens right when I need you to perform. <laughs> right, I just like right. forgot everything. <laughs> Okay, so do yeah. you have any personal dogs? I do have personal dogs. I have two hooligans over there watching me, wondering what I'm doing. Um, I have Marzipan the Whippet, and she has. I am. We, she's she's not a very pro prolific writer, but she does have her own little little kind of corner of the blog um, on my site. She has a Dear Marzipan column. It's you know she doesn't write too often. I you know I try to get on her about that, but. Um, She's no, she's lovely. She's my 10 year old Whippet and she is my sport dog. She's done, you know, all the dabbled in all the things and mostly did agility. And then she had a essentially career ending injury a while back. She's, she's fine, but she's, you know, she's, she's retired um, in that sense. And she's on a lot of my TikToks because she can say run around. The word actually sounds like run around. She says it clear as day. Um, so I'm always recording her saying that. So she's, you know, that's how people might know her. And then I have little Caper and Caper is a, you know, butter colored little Chihuahua Terrier thing. She's about 12 pounds, 14 inches, that kind of size. Uh, and she's so much, she is so much fun to train. I do agility with her. Agility is my main sport and I do agility and nose work with both of them. And um, 
she's a blast to train. She's a fast dog who likes to go, go, go. I got her as a um, bit of a diversion when Marzipan was injured. I thought, well, oh, my, my dog is down. She can't go do anything. She has to be on crate rest for so long. It was 18 months of recovery. And so I got a little, I was going to foster a little purse dog. I'd carry her and I'd go places. And this dog was immediately like, purse, schmurse, put me down. I want to tug stuff. I want to do things. And I was like, oh my God, I got a new sport dog. (laughs) So those are my two. They are 10 and five and they're wonderful. I love it. And so are they kind of built for racing? I'm not very familiar with the sporting breeds. Yeah, they're they're greyhoundy shaped. They're greyhoundy shaped, and they are the fastest. Am I right about this? I'm not exactly a whippet expert, but I think they're the fastest of the dogs for size because they're they're slower than the greyhound. The greyhound is faster or fastest, but they're so much smaller than the greyhound that for body size, they're 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 fast. So they're fast on straight track. They're fast on coursing, getting rabbits. They have really high brake drive, um, but they're very lazy otherwise. So they are. Um, they just do very little until they're sprinting. Um, and the working whippet is bred for a little bit more working mind. Uh, she was not, so I really had to work a lot in the beginning to teach her that that work was fun and earning stuff was great. And to have like a lot of, you know, power and choice and agency, just empowerment in general, because they tend to be pretty passive animals. And then the little one's a terrier. I used to have a no barking rule until I got a little terrier. <laughs> now I, and now I have like a, could we bark less rule? That's my rule now. It used to be a, there's zero barking tolerance in the house. Now we have like a, well, one bark is okay before you quiet. <laughs> you know, anyone who has a little terrier knows this. It's like it's bark first, ask questions later, and then hear that you've been asked to be quiet and go like, oh, right. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. I'll be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> they ask forgiveness, not permission. <laughs> yes, exactly. Bark. Oh, shoot. Cookie. <laughs> All right. All right. Come here. <laughs> My dogs are ridiculous. So our last question for you, we already kind of touched on it a lot. And that is, how did you get where you are today? Um, So we already went over your qualifications, but Mm. I'm really interested in what got you started in dog training in general. You know, I, there, it's long enough ago that, that there doesn't seem to be a, like a starting point that really stands out to me. I always was into dogs. I always was into animals. Um, and even, you know, even young volunteering at humane societies and, um, working in rescues and things when I was young. Um, and then sort of in the beginning, I hate to age myself, but we're talking about the late eighties and early nineties. Um, so, so, you know, casting to memory, it's hard to say, but I, I at first started trading simple dog training for things I needed, like summer housing in between, you know, early college. And then, um, doing that more when I didn't have other work and picking it up as a sideline and, and then getting more serious about it and working again in shelters and saying, huh, I could, I could kind of learn more from these people. And then, uh, the positive revolution came and I got much more involved in that. Um, then I eventually went to dog training school and I eventually, got much more formal mentorship from all sorts of people and it just kind of has gone on it's been 30 years so yeah it's kind of been a long time and at some points it was kind of a I can do this because I know how to do it and it you know and then it started to be like well this actually could just be my job like this could be my job if I formalize this and really get you know a more cohesive education um and then uh, and then I was just doing that for, for forever. And then when grad, st- grad school came along, um, 
it, it sort of took it in, into a different direction. And then of course, joining Denise Fenzi's online school, actually it was only being started right then. It, it, I was one of the first people involved, um, kind of took it in this other direction into an online direction. So this, that's what kind of started the rest of this, but, but really I've just sort of been a dog trainer my whole adult life and um, a dinosaur now. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm so interested in your bio. It says that your research focused on the dog human relationship. And I would love to yeah. learn more about what that means and also what kind of research that entails. A little bit of what I said before about that dogs prioritize owners information is what I, is what my dissertation is about. Your PhD school is a long journey and you study a whole lot of things and, and you're, and you're very self-directed. People just let you read a hundred papers on a topic and tell them about it, you know? And so, and, and that's essentially what grad school is trying to do. It's to teach you to be a scholar by yourself, to teach you to read what's out there, understand the whole space, the whole landscape of a certain topic. And then see if you have something to contribute to that. See if you see something that's a little missing right in there, or if it reminds you of something else and you're encouraged to read a variety of seemingly, you know, just a lot of interdisciplinary reading. So that's what I spent most of the time doing. And to, to cobble together the idea of the dog-human relationship, I studied evolution in general. I studied children and parenting a lot. The classwork part of my degree is in developmental psychology of children and parenting. But every time I would be reading something and thinking through another traditions literature, I would be thinking, where does this apply to dogs? Does something in here inform dogs? You know, does something in here help? So just mostly trying to look at our co-evolutionary story, assume that we have had effects on each other, and then let that uh, inform me as to which questions I can ask. And so the questions I particularly asked were, if you're getting information from your world or from, you know, the objects around you, you are getting it from your own experience with the objects. If you're foraging for food, you're foraging because your nose brought you to that place. If you're a dog and you're by yourself, or if you're an animal who does not collaborate or take information from others, uh, you'll solve your problem. However you solve your own problem. And if you are in a cooperative system with another species, if you are a dog and you're in a system with a person, prioritizing that person would increase your fitness. So that's mostly what I drilled down into in, in the research, but a lot of the reading was also about like the function of oxytocin, the function of, you know, what it is to bond with another animal, the attachment system between parents and, and babies and how that could inform, uh, I mean, dogs are not babies and the attachment situation and system is not the same, but coming into it as a professional dog trainer, I could read stuff and say, yeah, that really reminds me of a thing with dogs though. Let me go track that down a little bit or see, or see what it, what it did. But it's not as if there really are a ton of papers on the exact relationship and that I just sort of studied that. It's more reading everything that could go into that topic and then seeing what I could come up with that, you know, that had a, a common, a common thread through all the all the different literatures. It was, it was a great time. You, know, you spend eight years reading is what you do. You spend eight years reading and trying to find stuff out. And it's a, it's a wonderful sort of intellectual vacation <laughs> um, that uh, I'll say now I'm glad to be out of, but, but at the time it's just everything you pick up and read, you can think, okay, this is interesting, but does this impact in any way what we're trying to do with dogs? Does this allow me to make a kinder decision about dogs? Does this allow me to help a person be clearer in what they want rather than, you know, what we do as monkeys is we just get louder when we don't get what we want. We just get louder and more frustrated and bang stuff more right? and say it with more emphasis 
is that going to bring clarity to a dog, right? And and it, you know, monkeys bring clarity to other monkeys, but when you need to be clear to another another species, you have to come up with something else. So every time I'd read something, I'd be like, does this help me with a person and their actual problem, or is this you know too tangential? And, and so I I feel like I've gotten off your question entirely, but that's where my brain. You know brought. what? You know what? Just go nuts, okay? Just just go nuts. <laughs> That's okay? <laughs> yes, that is absolutely okay. You know, Lara and I, we just get together once every two weeks and get drunk and talk about dogs. We're like never on topic, so you're good. <laughs> so my last question for you here, you've been doing this for 25 years. And even in the very short five years that I've been in dog training, it feels like things are changing and progressing constantly just through that whole entire five years and so my question for you is has it always been this way in dog training so much so much change so much change and and i didn't you know anticipate being let's say being a historian that just sounds so lofty i'm not a historian or an historian of dog training but i feel sort of like i've become one a bit because i've experienced so much that has changed in our industry and part of what allows me to see it is that every few years we get a different platform, a different way to talk to each other. You know, when I was first learning dog training, we had books, <laughs> you know, there were just books <laughs> and maybe a TV show here or there. And if you lucked out, you got to work with somebody who was better than you. There wasn't, you know, there wasn't a lot of other place. Right. And then in the latest nineties is when I started for all of us started being obviously involved in the internet and there were things back then called bulletin boards and list serves and not to get too into the weeds there we all of a sudden could talk to each other and quickly in real time share all kinds of ideas that we were having and the positive dog training movement was coming up right and of course that led to fights and there were there were there was legitimate conflict between older style of training and and, and newer style of training and and that that conflict hasn't really resolved <laughs> to this day but the thing that keeps standing out to me is that every time we get a shift in the way we can talk to each other, we get a renewal of the argument space a little bit. So like I went to grad school. So the internet at the time was Yahoo, mostly for a place for us to talk to each other. It would be on bulletin boards or through email, you know, e email lists. And then I go to grad school and Facebook comes up and social media takes over. And it's a very different way to communicate. It's so immediate. It's immediately a group thing. Um, things can get shared that wasn't possible before and that really changed the landscape a lot it, for good and for bad we had a lot more fights but we also had a lot more dissemination of interesting or new technique I watched dog training go from it was wrong to use food like wrong you're bribing your dog and your dog should do it for you your dog shouldn't do it for for, for the cookie if you feed your dog cookies every time he does stuff your dog's just going to do it for that you don't feed your kids every time they you know, have manners, I mean, you, you have to expect them to do it. And of course that the motivating factor, there's the pressure <laughs> of the, the collar, the collars and everything else. And to watch food, not only get incorporated, but then incorporated smartly, like the shaping came up, all sorts of interesting clicker training came up. And now we've seen major shifts in things like adding consent, adding cooperative care, adding dog empowerment. A lot of things have changed. And when I look now at you know, now that social media has shifted to something even more immediate, where we have now have immediate videos to give to each other in one, one TikTok space, immediate video response. Um, it reinvigorates the war, that's true. But 
it's also exposed me yet again to like a different generation of trainers on both sides. And what I'm seeing on both sides makes dog training very different from it did when we first started. We first started absolutely no food and then positive training was trying to, trying to bring in food and marking and, and, and things like that and reducing dominance theory and, and stuff like that. And now the, the fight sometimes seems a little ridiculous to me because the, when I watch balance trainers, not everyone, but there's never any everyone. Just in general, when I watch balance trainers now, it looks a whole lot like what positive training looked like in the beginning because it's full of food and it's full of good principles and it's just full of learning and kindness. And and while there is still, of course, stylistic and message differences and some choice differences in there, there's, that's definitely in existence. The amount that that side of things has changed is legion. And I don't think anyone who walks in right now or someone who's been training just a few years, which is a lot of people I run into on TikTok. I mean, it's fine. It's certainly fine to be at the beginning of your career. But people come in and they think this is the state of the war. And I'm like, hang on, you're yelling at people that just a couple of decades ago were entirely against food and reward so you know uh, getting some things in perspective dog training has absolutely changed entirely in the whole in the time i've been in it and i get re-exposed to how much it's changed every time we get a new platform every time we get a new way to talk to each other so just email big changes just social media big changes and now kind of immediate video social media with quick hot takes that don't have a lot of crowdsourcing we're getting a lot of changes there too. So, so, you know, for good and for bad, for all of it, um, dog training is so much better now than it was when I started that it's exciting to be a part of now. It's a good time to be a dog trainer. Yeah. It just seems like if you're going to be in that learning space where you're getting a lot of that information and helpful stuff, it's going to come with conflict. So you're just going to have to be okay with that, like TikTok or social media or whatever. It's true. And you have to be able to sort a lot better. Um, it used to be that, you know, like, I mean, really long time ago, and you certainly might, like in my childhood, you didn't rise to the, to the station of being able to write a book in dog training because until you were a leader in dog training, I mean, you may not have been the kindest, but you certainly were somebody who had a measure of success. And because books were not all that easy to, to, you know, get in the mainstream, uh, you know, channels. Right. And and there's a, there's, so there's a little bit of some gatekeeping around who got to be an authority and the internet has, you know, changed that in many ways at first, at first uh, allowing everyone to have essentially an equal voice, a kind of equal voice, maybe not the same audience, but uh, a, a, a certainly more of an audience than they ever would have before. And anybody can have a hot take on something and have no expertise in it, but look like they do because that, that one hot take seemed like it was a little reasonable. And someone's like, yeah, me too. And there's, there's a sense of egalitarianism, which is good you want a lot of people to have a lot of access to a lot of things you don't want there to be you know, gatekeeping around knowledge but it's also loosened the restrictions around whose opinion matters in this space and should we be listening to people who <laughs> don't have any experience and credential and 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 the job now is to because that's not going to change is to be a very good sorter of information of who you're listening to because you're going to get it from all sides you're going to have to be a good sorter i don't think you had to be as good a sorter when there were fewer channels but i think today's person has to be a much better sorter than yesterday's person had to be but today's person has a lot more that they can get so good good and bad if you if you're going to be exposed to everything in the world that's great 
be a good sorter, have, have a standard, you know? Yeah. And then especially in an unregulated industry like this, you tend to just walk in and believe whoever gets to you first because you assume that everyone else is more knowledgeable than you are. Right. So when I first stepped into the dog world, I believed a lot of things that were told to me just because they were told to me. And then as time goes on, you kind of get right. more familiar with like, oh, actually, things are a lot more complicated than I thought they were. Absolutely. And I see it as about the, I, you know, my, my friends of mine and I joke about it as the five-year mark. You have to be in about five years before you've seen all the things, uh, most of the things, uh, seen yourself as wrong two or three times in iteration. Um, you know, something you really believe now you really don't anymore. Um, and it takes about sort of five years to cobble together enough cases in your work and enough problems you couldn't solve um, and meeting enough other trainers who think differently than you for you to finally kind of say like, okay, I know what I want, what I like, what I'm best at. And I know how to respond to people who are different. Uh, I'm a lot less black and white, you know, at, at about the five-year mark. And so before that, we have a little more evangelism and a little more black and white thinking, I think, at least as I yeah, encounter it. Totally. Right? Um, totally. Yeah. I will go ahead and move us past the segment because I want to be considerate of your time. Oh, and we fine. haven't even got to the meat of the episode it's yet. To fine, your it's stuff. fine, it's fine. <laughs> I, I do go on endlessly. So if you have if you have room in the podcast episode itself, it's really fine. You can keep asking. Okay. Well, our next segment is about the Playway and your available classes. Yay. The Playway is a method that Dr. Amy developed to help shy and reactive dogs overcome their struggles. And a lot of training in these areas tends to rely either on corrections or just simply on food. So I'm really excited to talk about incorporating play into all of that. And do I understand correctly that the Playway is more of a system and the Fenzie Dog Sports Academy classes that you teach are built off of that system or am I totally off there? Huh. Okay. How would I answer that? Um, the Playway is, uh, I, I guess it's a system. It's an, is it an approach? Is it a method? Uh, it's uh, all of the above. It's not a training system. It really is very, very much pointed at a particular problem. Um, but it's developed entirely, it's by, by me through, you know, trial and error. And of course, through the influence of others who, you know, Denise and Grisha, I'll name them. And the only place to learn the Playway is through my class at Fenzie Dog Sports Academy. The class is called Dealing with the Boogeyman. And there's a legacy reason why it's called that and not a, not the, the class is not called the Playway. As an aside, the reason is because we started the class as just a, a reactivity class, Dealing with the Boogeyman. I got to help fearful dogs, you know, adjust. And, and I hadn't developed the playway yet. I used that class to develop it. I didn't know I was going to develop it. It kind of came up through the influences I was having and the things I was trying and, and this new online thing that nobody had. We were the, the first major online dog school like this. And, and I hadn't taught online and, and it all came together. So that is, so the name of the class can't change due to the way the school structured. So the class is called Dealing with the Boogeyman, but that is where you come to learn the Playway, which is what I am known for now and whatever. And the class that I'm in right now is Management for Reactive Dogs. Is that also utilizing the Playway or is that something else altogether? It's not the same thing. They are kind of um, two halves of a whole, if you will. So the theory, it's the wrong way to use the word theory, but the, the idea there is that uh, if your dog is, let's say, reactive to strange men in the world, strange people, the idea there is that your dog is pretty stressed by this scenario. Your dog has, you know, fears of something and that that fear 
is pretty irrational because most of the men of the world that your dog is passing do not mean them any harm at all. Your dog is afraid, but in reality shouldn't actually be. So I, I see that as a, a problem in your dog's understanding. Your dog doesn't know that they actually are safe. They are reacting as if they are not safe. Um, so they don't really know the real, the objective reality of the situation. So in the play way, I, I do setups to help them learn that they really are safe and things are really okay. In the meantime, so that's the therapeutic part where we, we do play therapy, therapeutic play to help them not be stressed in times where they used to be more, used to be stressed. In the meantime, though, in life, you still need to potty your dog and you still need to go outside and you still need to, you know, do your life, conduct your life, how you were going to conduct it. And so because you still have to do that, I argue that you need an active management system. You need to be able to move from A to B without stressing your dog unduly. You need to be able to reduce how bad it is outside for your dog by having an active system that helps, helps them get through. Um, what a lot of people do is kind of try to feed sort of when they walk by, or they don't really know exactly what to do when their dog is going to blow. And they maybe just walk at midnight because they don't really know what to do or, or whatever. And so I, I made a management system that can help them help their dogs just kind of live in daily life, reducing the amount of times they blow up, reducing the stress that's on the dog. And then as on a separate track, we put them in play therapy so that they can be getting toward their fear at its root. Um, and so the management is like avoiding the problem expression and the play therapy is getting to the root of the problem. Okay. Amazing explanation. Thank you so much for going into that. I appreciate it. Yeah. And then do you also have a third class that's more about noise or am I thinking of somebody else? I do. I have a, so those are the three main classes that I have. I have another class that kind of comes around every once in a while, but, but these are my three main classes at, at the Fenzy Dog Sports Academy. The, this one is, that one is called um, Sound Advice, Conquering Noise Sensitivity. Um, and each of the three classes has a completely different approach. So in the play therapy class, dealing with the boogeyman, that is entirely something I've come up with a way to play with dogs that helps reduce their stress. And we can talk about what that is in the management class. It is a bunch of very specific management games that helps them disengage from what they're afraid of and stay engaged with you while you help them get out of the, out of the moment. And in the sound class, it's, potentiated classical conditioning. So I use the classical conditioning we should all be using when we're talking about sound work um, and anything where a dog startles and has to recover. So startle recovery. But the way I see most people doing classical conditioning with their dogs is ineffective. I see a lot of the boom happened and now they're just trying to give food because the good thing has to follow the bad thing. And so therefore I'm doing classical, right? But there's not a lot of change in the situation because the it, it requires more adjustment than good things follow bad things for, for us to actually have classical conditioning occur. And so I in that class, I break it down into all of its elements. I train each element up and it has to pass a test before we can get to the next element. I really need to see it working before you get to put the next piece on. And by the end of class, you have a whole structured system of how to deal with sound and we've practiced the whole time on completely safe sounds so that your dog is free to actually learn instead of already being kind of tested by the sound itself and trying to overcome it with the good thing. We actually just teach it with neutral sounds entirely so that your dog can learn that sounds are great. 
um, without the without the baggage of, of the fear. That's amazing. I love that so much. And by the way, how did you get connected to teach on Fenzy Dog Sports Academy? That's sort of an that's sort of an interesting story if you're a, a dog trainer because it kind of comes up from the difficulty we had in the beginning as positive dog trainers. God, at first it was before grad school. We were me and a little training cohort. We wanted to be in dog sports, and there wasn't any way to get positive dog training in dog sports. We wanted to do competition obedience. And we weren't really allowed to be in the local dog training clubs because we wanted to use clickers and food and that wasn't allowed. Wow. So, yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And it's not that long ago. <laughs> like it wasn't when I was a kid or something. Like it was, you know, like the dog I had before this set of dogs, like it, it, it was recent. Oh, the clicker. It's so annoying. We don't want to hear any of these clicks. Like that's just like, like oh, you people and your clickers. Can we just like you have to have a choke chain to be in the you know, in our class because that's what we train with. I'm like, well, we we want to do it in a different way. So we had to make it up ourselves, which was not great. And I'm not saying this is the state of the entire world. We just couldn't find anybody to coach us in positive approaches to teaching competition obedience. We just couldn't find a mentor. So we got the rule book and we tried to make it up ourselves. And um, you can get pretty far if you know where you're supposed to be going. But, we, you know, so we each got like our CD or something, which is the first level of uh, competition obedience. But it, we tapped out. We were just, we didn't know how to get the harder stuff. We didn't really know what the exercises were and how to solve problems. And so in casting about for to see who could help us, Denise Fenzi was a local trainer to us. And so it was like, well, and she was in, uh, she should say, but I think she was mid process between traditional training where she, where she started and positive training. I think she was doing a lot of positive training, but was not only doing positive training, but knew enough about how to accomplish it with what we were trying to say we wanted. Like she could get through all the exercises without us using a collar as a way to communicate. And so we're like, all right, well, we've got her and that's something. <laughs> and so that's where that's, it's not exactly where I first met her. I had met her socially at a different time, but essentially that's, that was the first major intersection with, you know, going to her house, knowing where she, you know, knowing how she trained and all of this. And then grad school started for me. So I took a break. And then at the end, uh, when I had this dog, Marzipan, Denise got a puppy. She got Lyra and she and Lyra and Marzipan were puppies together and they were uh, the same age. I mean, and they were, both struggling with a similar kind of thing as puppies. They're both very environmental and not super driven for the reinforcement we had to give. And so I was seeing her blog posts and I was kind of commiserating with her about it. And as life would have it, it turns out I had a class to take that was near her house um, during heavy traffic time. So I would go to that agility class with Marzipan, my dog as a puppy. And then I'd be stuck there for two hours waiting for traffic to go away. And she's like, well, you're stuck here. Why don't you be stuck here in my yard? We can just do dog training stuff. And I was like, okay, why not? So we did all sorts of fun stuff together every week for like a while. And right in that time was when the idea for having an online dog school came up and now she and I were having a lot of intersection and she's like, would you want to do a behavior class in the school? And I'm like, I guess, can you really do that online? And she's like, I don't know. And I'm like, okay, I guess I'll try. So it was really a lot of serendipity is in that. And, you know, I only know her because she could actually help us get over the hump of learning something complex without traditional tools. And I was at the right place at the right time when she was saying, I mean, you could teach, you know, like you're graduating soon. Do you want to teach a class at the school? And I'm like, I'll, okay. I mean, I guess I'll try that. Why not? And it was, it was small. It was just a few classes and it's turned into something 
unbelievable since then. But uh, I don't think anyone could have foreseen. I certainly didn't foresee still having this job. That was eight years ago. That was eight, eight, easily eight years ago. I think it was 2013. So no, wait, is that eight years? Yeah. Okay. That is eight years. Okay. Wait, <laughs> yeah, 2013. I'm like, wait, no, wait. Um, so yeah, that's sort of how I intersected with Denise. And, and since I know this is either going to come up or I, you know, I know you're going to want to ask this I actually don't know if you're gonna ask this but the fact that I had intersection with Denise in real life over dogs over and over again and had many conversations with her I started seeing the kinds of things she did in her positive training realm that was very different from the tradition I got in my positive training realm because I come from the pet world and she comes from the sport world and achieving pet obedience or pet behavior change is different from what you achieve in sports, getting a certain level of reliability, getting a certain level of precision, having it matter how they sit rather than just sit means put your butt down. doesn't matter how you do it. And in sport, it matters whether you're tuck sit, whether you rock back sit, whether your feet are even like it matters in a lot of ways. And so her solutions to problems, when you take out the opportunity to, to, to correct with, with a, a collar um, the solutions she'd come up with were unique to me because they were coming from her instead of coming from, the pet dog training tradition, the pet dog training books and the mentors I had and the, the leaders at the time. So a lot of it was really novel to me. And one thing she really did was incorporate a lot of play. And she didn't just have a history of doing play. She had vocabulary for play. She had concepts around the different ways um, you can act in play with dogs. And it was, it was really informative for me um, in coming up with the play way because the way she conceived of play was very different from the way I'd been seeing anybody else conceive of it, if they were conceiving of it at all, um, because most play is, is ball and fetch. Most people don't really play with their dogs socially. Um, and she was in order to be able to reinforce them in the ring. She wanted to have a play relationship to bring up enjoyment and to be able to bounce around in, in her, in her sport. But, you know, it landed on me after grad school and after a lot of thought um, and it allowed me to kind of run with, run with it and turn it into therapy. And that combined with some stuff that Grisha Stewart was doing at the time, that's when BAT 1.0 was coming up. And the ideas she was having and the stuff she was experimenting with kind of collided with the play that Denise was showing me. And that's what started me thinking about the playway. So I think the class I had at Fenzi was already two or three, maybe two iterations old before I started to dip my toe into the water of like, hey, you guys want to play a little bit? I want to see if this works. Like I started to experiment on on the students in the class and be like, could you just do like a little bit of play? I want to see what it does. <laughs> so that's how the playway got born. It was it, it, So much of this is entirely serendipity. It's entirely just right place, right time, right piece of information on the right person at the right time and some experimentation. And it's just kind of mind boggling to really think about. So you experiment, you collaborate with Denise Fenzi, you collaborate with Grisha Stewart, all the greats, and you come up with something revolutionary regarding play and how it factors into reactivity, which is so interesting and so cool. Play is supporting your dog doing its own learning at the proper threshold. Dogs, dogs if you put them under the right, under threshold entirely, um, will be curious about what's going on rather than threatened by what's going on. And once you're curious and once you're in a good place, you can actually learn that you learn something you didn't know before, which is that you actually are safe because you know, a dog who's afraid of men is wrong, right? A dog who's afraid of people outside is, is wrong. I mean, it's, it's right to them. And I honor that. I respect that they're actually scared, 
but in reality, they're not correct because the, there is no threat. And they just don't know that. They, they are immediately too afraid. It's the same way I am with spiders. There's actually no threat with the spider that's in the corner of my kitchen right now, corner of my window. That, that, that spider is not a threat to me. It is objectively true that it's not going to hurt me. It's objectively true that it doesn't bite. It's objectively true that it wants nothing to do with me and is not a threat. But I don't feel that way. <laughs> I'm afraid of spiders. And so, you know, coming to an understanding that you're not actually in, in danger is a process that we can help dogs do. And so that's what the Playway is trying to do, is trying to use play to help them come to that conclusion. And it's directly related to the kinds of thresholds that Krisha discovered were helpful and the kinds of interactions that, that Denise taught me about that really support a dog's emotional system. And so I combined those and there you go, Playway. I love that. And I love hearing about how everything that happened with all of you was a collaboration. You know, like no dog trainer is an yeah. island, so to speak. <laughs> There's, there is no dog training island. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Sorry. Uh, apologies if you're going to edit that. If not, then just straight up apologies. I hit the mute button by accident. But yes, no dog trainer is an island. We all stand on the shoulders of giants. Everybody does. And I absolutely have. I haven't invented things. I've coalesced things. I've taken ideas people have had and thought, oh, wait, that fits over here. That fits with this thing. Um, but you know, that's why I say I developed the system. I didn't, you know, invent it or whatever. <laughs> there's, there's no new things, except, except, in, except in combination with other things. What was it that inspired you to look into a new way of rehabilitating shy and fearful dogs? Yeah, um, you know, I think, I think the short answer, if there is ever one that comes from Amy, is that, <laughs> yeah, I'm super long with it, um, is that it's, somewhat dissatisfying the tools we have reactivity is tough and aggression is tough and fearful anxious reactive dogs it's it's tough on people and i guess i was vaguely dissatisfied with the resolution rates with food and i feel like i had the same sorts of cases and the same sorts of resolutions as anybody else i knew and a lot of times you hear that reactivity is kind of a a lifelong thing you can you can you handle it and mostly get it out of out of major expression but you're always going to be thinking about it and you know it's tough on dogs and i just i just always wanted there to be something more effective and it's just kind of a just a big sense of it not not a true criticism because I, I felt like we were doing the right stuff we're we're using classical conditioning to change associations we're using operant conditioning to shift behaviors but yet still it seems to plague dogs so much these fears and i you know, it once I encountered information in grad school that said, you know, this is not how we deal with people. We don't use, for at least the most part, just straight up classical and operant conditioning for, for people who are fearful. And we certainly don't do it with children who are fearful. Children who have anxiety are not classically conditioned to not have anxiety. Um, and so, you know, taking a page from that and saying, you know, how do we deal with people when they're upset how do we deal with people who are scared led me to things that I wanted to try and I really had no way of knowing whether it would work so it was just something I wanted to experiment with and lo and behold it actually works for for me looking at it my eyes my students my corner of it it works so much better than anything I had before that it's what I'm now completely devoted to I mean I'm not not saying I don't do any other technique I do all the all the techniques all together but um, I'm devoted to to developing this and to teach it um, 
in the world because I think it's I think it is often a game changer for dogs who can start to relax finally and take in new information about their triggers where they couldn't before because because so often they're just over threshold even if they're eating I'm sorry to say even if they're eating they're mentally over threshold and I think I think you can relate to that if you just think of the right analogies you know there are many times where we're functioning just fine but we're still stressed or we're you have to give a speech. You don't like to give speeches. You have to do one anyway. You do it. You do. You do fine. You can do it. But inside you have turmoil, right? You're still over threshold. And getting a dog all the way to a place where they feel safe is the first step to changing their mind that they're actually safe. You can't t- teach them that they're safe if they already started not by not feeling safe. Getting back to safety is much harder than starting from a place of safety and staying there. I don't really know how to articulate this question. Hopefully it makes sense. But a couple of times you have mentioned, you know, this isn't how we work with human children or this isn't how we work with people. And I'm wondering, what is it that causes you to look at the way we work with human children to gauge how we work with dogs? I think that we need to entertain the idea from all ideas, really, from other literature to see what could apply. It's not that you then take everything that is said or everything that is done and apply it whole cloth. But it's, it's that, is there something in here that I can pull? Is there something in here that's relevant? And what um, is happening there is that when dogs are fearful, uh, globally, so say, you know, in a generalized way, um, we can't talk to them and say, you know, you don't need to be (laughs) Um, because they're not going to take in that information. And frankly, that isn't how fear, fear doesn't work on an approval system. Fear doesn't get worse because someone approves of it. Fear doesn't get worse because someone rewards it. Fear doesn't get worse because you approve, you know, you like it and tell them good job. Um, and fear doesn't get um, better if you say there's nothing to be afraid of here. Um, dealing with fears in human beings is about getting experiences that, that show that you're safe and, coming to believe that those that that is true and factual and getting that information into somebody well sure you got language if you have an adult and you have experiences that you can get them to have buy-in to if, if they're an adult but when they're kids um there's your tools are different your tools are limited because they're not giving you buy-in and you can't really talk to them about it if you have an anxious two-year-old you can't just have talk therapy i mean it's you know it's not cognitive behavioral therapy you're doing for a two-year-old child but there are anxious two-year-olds and I saw plenty of them in, you know, in my training. I mean, in, in classes that I took, not actual two-year-olds, not actual anxious two-year-olds. Um, I'm not a clinician. Um, and so I thought, well, there you go. If I have to help a two-year-old child feel less anxious, that that's somewhat analogous to helping a dog who has limited understanding of what's really going on and limited channels and taking information in for me. And so I started exploring, does the stuff that helps toddlers is stuff that helps small children, does that help dogs or not? I couldn't assert that it did just based on literature. I had to see if it did. So that there, there you go back to my thesis of it's great to take in ideas, but you have to put it under your hands to know if it's going to be useful. You know, so that, that's, that's where I started. I'm like, we have to help little children. What is it we're doing? Oh, we're using play therapy. Great. Let's see what that does for dogs. And sure enough, Sure enough, it works just great. That is so interesting. Thank you for answering. I didn't know whether that was going to be like an annoying question or no, something. but Not at all. 
Awesome. So that's that's awesome. So Dr. Amy, like we've talked about, offers three different classes on uh, the Denise Fenzi Dog Sports Academy. Uh, I guess it's just Fenzi Dog Sports Academy, FDSA. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. And I'm actually in the management course right now. And even if you don't have a reactive dog, I highly recommend signing up. Um, registration is open right now. And yeah, even if you don't have a reactive dog, the information is just so interesting. So I recommend signing up. I've, I've been loving the course. Is there anything that we haven't touched on involving the three courses that you want to make sure we talk about? Yeah, um, registration opens tomorrow. Um, so you're all in good stead still. Um, and the, the class schedule is, uh, you know, up at the top of the page. You click on class schedule when you go to the FenzyDogSportsAcademy.com. Um, I only offer one class at a time. So I offer this playway class. It's called Dealing with the Boogeyman. I offer this one this term because we just finished the management class. And then the management class will come back next term. And then after that, this class again. So I, I rotate them all year round so that you can jump in at any point in those two classes and get both of those classes because they go then sequentially. The sound class only comes in June and December. So that isn't up yet for a bit. And then just to clear things up for the listeners, so we're recording this on the 21st. So by the time this episode comes out, uh, registration will be open. So can you let us know when it closes? (laughs) Super blunder. Super blunder. This isn't live. This isn't live. What? This isn't live? What? (sighs) Sorry, everyone. Registration opened on the 22nd and continues through August 15th. And you can you can get this this firm anytime until August fifteenth. And um, the thing to understand is that the Playway class, which is the one that is is currently open for registration, <laughs> I learned, is um, for dogs who are stressed about something, anxious about something, fearful of something, globally so. So it can be any number of things that they're fearful of. It's in a sport training school, but it's not for sport dogs. It's for all of you. It's for everybody. And I really do think that just about everybody can learn this for, um, for their dogs and for future dogs, because it's, it's learning to, to use play to help support the emotional life of your dog is not just isolated to because my dog has a problem, right? Every dog at some point in life could feel overfaced by something, could could feel insecure, could feel not sure about some new changes. And I think just there isn't a dog out there who doesn't benefit from learning to use therapeutic social play, to have a, a, a way to play with people. The, the, the play style in the class, which we didn't really go over much, is it's not toys. It's not fetch. It's not um, tug. It is interaction that is social in nature you on the floor with your dog and it's it's in a sweet spot it's not all the way down to just affection but it's also not bouncing around and mouthing each, mouthing each other getting mouthed and chasing and running around outside it's not high energy games it's low energy silly um just goofing around on the floor together and that middle ground is something dogs often don't have a lot of facility in they know how to be affectionate with you and they know how to be aroused and stimulated and running and training with you but they don't often know that middle ground space of how to handle relating to you um but not ramping up really high or just falling over and saying fine just just rub my belly or them licking your face a lot it 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 is a separate 
place that I think it's best that all dogs learn how to exist in this, this place of being able to relate to you socially, but not get over overstimulated by it and not just give up on it. I really want to take this class because uh, Brett and I were talking about this when he was a guest on Yappy Hour a few weeks ago, but I have two cats. And if I'm playing with my cats, I will do anything. I will bend over backwards for them. I want to figure out how they want to play so that they'll interact with mm-hmm. me. But then for some reason, when it comes to my dogs, I'm like, right. Eh, I guess I'll just throw a ball <laughs> for <right>. you. <laughs> you know? That's right. And I think every dog team needs to know how to do this because it's so fundamental to the it really helps the relationship. It really helps you read each other. Well, it helps you tell when stress is starting to creep in. It, it really it just adds a dimension to the relationship. Um, it, it keeps us from just being a school marm <laughs> and then an affection giver. Like we get to give a new dimension to this. And then, and then also um, I think that it can reveal to you that your dog might be a little bit more stressed than you maybe initially thought you start to see changes when dogs play um, that I'm really excited to watch happen when the class starts I get to watch all these teams learn to play. And at first there's a lot of like misfires. There's a lot of, I don't know how to do this and dogs don't know how to do this. And Oh my God, what is all this? And then things start to settle down and jokes start to get told dog laughter starts to come in. Dogs start to feel a lot better. They start to um, just shake off things. Things change that you have can have no expectation of like um, I very often see like the tension of the dogs in the house go down when you're not working on it. You're not working on dog dog relationship at all. And yet they can fundamentally change. I've seen car reactivity go away when we didn't even get outside of the house yet. We, we have no setups in the car, none whatsoever. And, and they're not reacting in the car anymore. And someone will ask me why. And I'm like, I play is magic that's why i say play is magic because i really don't i mean i have some speculation as to why we could get into that in some other podcast but um i think it's oxytocin there's my short there's my short speech um but it it, it really counters a lot of stress in everyday life and when, and when you empty the cup of stress you you start to get a whole different kind of side of yourself and um and the the last little thing i want people to know is that if you're a trainer especially play in this class in this system i should say is not where you would put food in any of the rest of your training. So we are not playing when a dog chooses to disengage as a reward for them doing so. Oh. And we are not playing with dogs when a trigger shows up as a way to classically condition someone. Oh, okay. It is neither operant conditioning nor classical conditioning. Even though both of those things are happening all the time anyway, because you can never get away from them. <laughs> right. I want you to know as a trainer listening to this, that you do not put play where you would have put food or toys mm-hmm. wow. in a normal training system. It is in neither of those places. It is not placed there. So learning the system means learning where to put it when we're doing therapeutic intervention. After you learn to play, you learn where to put it and it's not where food would have gone. So it's not operant conditioning. I'm not rewarding dogs for looking I'm not rewarding dogs for looking away. In fact, I have no feedback for them whatsoever when they look or look away. This is not like, look at that. Um, It is separate from look at that. So I allow dogs to look or look away based on how they're feeling. And I don't give them instruction on what they should be doing around that or, or feedback when they make their choices. I let those choices stand and I just make sure threshold is correct so that they can do those choices without my intervention at all. And we play to, put them in the right soup 
So, but they're in the right frame of mind to be learning all this new stuff. So it's much more in the A of ABC or in the antecedent arrangement in classical conditioning, if you are thinking about it you know, scientifically that way. Um, but it's not a, an alternate form of reinforcement. And so many people say to me, oh, play, I know how to play with my dog. So I can just play instead of put food. I'm like, yeah, no, no. Because if it were that, this would not be a whole system. This would just be, you should just play. <laughs> Right. So to come and learn how the whole thing holds together, that's in that's in the class. Um, if you need help with management or sound in the meantime, each of those have a one hour webinar style thing. Also at the Fancy Dark Sports Academy in the pet program area, you can just get a, a brief overview of management, a brief overview of sound if you need that support right now before those classes come back. Um, but otherwise, join us at the bronze level. Um, which is really um, affordable at $65 for six weeks of my class. You get full access to everything. You can't ask me questions, but you can see everyone learning and, and you can watch er everything I say to everybody, all of the video materials, all the lectures. I'm very involved. I'm there every day. This is not kind of just a static thing that lectures come up once a week. I'm, I'm involved every day and everybody's learning. It's a very interactive class. Um, and and it's $65 for bronze, but if you need a scholarship, the price goes in half. So it's $32.50 for the six weeks. And nobody gatekeeps that. If you tell administration that you need a scholarship, then you get a scholarship. It's, we just believe you. We don't dig in. So um, if it's about money, don't let that stop you. I'd love to get more. Pe I'd love to reach more people so they can see just what play can actually do for dogs. It's uh, um, it, it works for it works for everybody. It's not just for dogs who are reactive. So if you're not sure about it, come and come and watch everybody learn because, and, uh, and then maybe if you want an active spot in the next version, you can, you can jump up and get a working spot. Those are limited though. Those are hard to get, but, uh, but, but auditing is unlimited. So we, we take everybody and you're going to take the class, are you? Yeah, I think so. I would really like to. And then for anyone listening, if you want to see a real life testament to the playway and what it can accomplish, go follow the Toby project, either on Instagram or TikTok. Kayla, Toby's mom, does the playway by Amy Cook and you can see real time. Toby is making huge improvements every single day. He is. He's making huge improvements. Shout out to Kayla who of the Toby project. Follow the Toby project on TikTok or Instagram. They are rock stars they uh, kayla is a regular dog owner not a dog trainer who adopted um, a dog with multiple behavior problems and she's been trying to do this by herself for a really long time just cobbling together everything she's heard of from all the different sources and doing her best at it and then she and i intersected and i said i got some stuff i can show you here join the management class and join the play class and um toby is just, and that what i intended to do there was organize her thoughts around something cohesive give her a program she could follow that was stuff she was doing but it but her stuff was less assembled and so we assembled it into something that, that she can lean on and toby is just toby is just improving leaps and bounds i'm so proud of her work with him i mean they're an amazing team they really are she works so he hard does. She does. And look at him now, though. I'm so proud of them. Look at how cute he is now. I mean, he's always cute, but you know what I mean? Yeah, he's always cute, but he's like making friends, going to the beach. It's amazing. Yeah. And, and, you know, in, in the play way, she's going to take it again. Um, she took it a while ago, but not at gold. And she's going to take it again and um, really learn through the second time through because it's a dense class. And sometimes the first time through, you think you get it. And then you try it for a while. Then you're like, wait a minute. And then you play it again, do the class again. You're like, oh, I see it more deeply now. Um, she's going to do that. But what was, you know, really helpful for him too is having a management structure that enabled Kayla, the person, to know what to do when. And 
you know, every walk cannot be therapy. You can't make every outing you have into classical conditioning and try to teach every time you go outside because the whole thing can get so taxing. And so what the management system gave Kayla was a chance to say, sometimes we're going to work and sometimes we're just going to keep walking and we're not really going to try to work on this one right now. Um, And that really helped his stress levels go way down. And when his stress levels returned to, I don't know where they were, but when they went down, I think that's what's really facilitated him learning new stuff because you can't learn when you're so triggered all the time. It's really difficult. But when you're, if you're learning how to relax, you can take in new information, like everything's really okay. You're safe. You know, no one means you any harm. And it's just too hard to learn that if you're not in the right frame of mind. So my, I feel like my job in all of this is to help dogs and by extension, their people be in the right frame of mind for learning and to, to laugh stuff off rather than, you know, try so hard to make an association that you're just eating and watching. And instead it's just like, let's, let's dial this way back and get some laughter in here, get some lolling around in here, get some distance in here so everybody can be safe and then, and let the learning grow from there, plant the seed and then let the plant grow. So that's what we do. And to end the episode, we're getting into the anxiety inducing portion of the outline where you were like, I don't know what to say here. I'll wait. (laughs) Yeah, just give it your best shot. We're not sticklers here at the Doggery Devel podcast. We're just a couple of drunk 30-somethings. So just go for it. Um, so our first question for you here is, if there was one thing you could get every dog owner to understand, what would it be? The The problem with that question is that, is there really one? Is there one thing? There are so many things, right? There was one thing. I would say that your dog is having a problem, not giving you one. I think a lot of times people have lost connection to their empathy with how difficult it is to, to be there, to be a dog, to be their dog. And so much of what happens is adversarial in both dog training and in dog behavior rehabilitation. It's often difficult on all sides. And the more we can raise empathy and say, you know, he's just an animal. He's doing the best he can with what's in front of him and what he knows. And let's just slow all of this down, raise the empathy, raise the laughter again, slow everything down. I think it, it buys us some time to get some real change. Um, I'd like to reduce the adversarial nature that a lot of training has in it. And I think that would, that would change a lot of dog ownership. At least I would hope so. And I just want to repeat that for the listeners. I want everyone to hear it twice. So your dog is not giving you a problem. He's having a problem. Your dog is not giving you a hard time. He's having a hard time. Your dog is not. And, and it, it, same is true of your child. Uh, people who are tantruming, people who are losing their minds, people who are angry, people who are crying, they're not giving you a hard time. They're having when your dog is struggling. So you are there to help. You are not there to demand you know, obedience or get better behavior. You're there to help them. Um, and you're a team. You guys need to collaborate. I love that. And then our next question for you, what event in your career has been the most impactful on you? I think, I think I get waylaid by the, by the term event and I was trying to think of events, but if you really kind of look at the things we've talked about today, I think that, that the things that have impacted me the most are first the global push toward more positive dog training, more rewards-based dog training, because that wasn't where we started. We, were, we started with a whole lot of punishment. And that opened a lot of doors to a lot of innovation. I know we're having problems now, but they're nothing like they were. I mean, we are much more one community than people think we are. And 
we can we can find that because the, because dogs dog training has evolved a lot and that combined with the idea that collaboration is important it's not a threat to learn from others and and i wouldn't know any of this if i hadn't intersected with denise or if i had met denise and been like meh whatever that's not the kind of thing i like and moved on um i wouldn't you know be here to know the things that i know and so so you know be open to when your life clashes with somebody else's when when information happens to you sometimes that event is going to be the one that changes everything you, you don't know. I didn't know it was going to, but certainly it was. So positive training in general, and then meeting up with people smarter than me that know more stuff than I do and being just smart enough to listen um, is, is what I come up with when you, when you say that question. <laughs> You're doing great, Amy. And the next question, what has been your biggest mistake working with dogs and what did you learn from it? I think my mistakes come from when I stop looking at reality and get a little lost in what I think should be and what I think I deserve. I think the mistakes I've made in correcting dogs in whatever definition of that term you want to use back in the day when I corrected quite pointedly, or even today, if I, uh -uh, I mean, you can call correction anything you want, but anytime I look back on the times when I've done that, they've mostly been rooted in because you should know that by now <laughs> or, you know, that's unacceptable. You can't, you shouldn't do that instead of connecting to reinforcement history, understanding and really knowing what a dog is triggered by in the moment. It, the mistakes I make come from when I get in my head about what I think I deserve or what you should already know by now. And those aren't real things. I don't deserve anything. Um, it's not how it works. That's not how teaching works. You are intersecting with a live being. They have a reinforcement history. They only know stuff you've taught them or stuff they see in the moment. They are not any you know, more than that. And, and, and if I get out of that place of connecting with exactly why they're doing what they're doing and that they have a right to do it. They have a right to make that choice. It's my responsibility to change what's around them and change what they know. Um, when I get lost in that and start thinking about myself and how inconvenienced I am, or damn it, why don't you know this already? Um, I, I make my training mistakes. And so I, I always try to remember that the mistakes will be mine, not theirs that they are just animals and doing the best they can with what's in front of them, what I've taught them, what they know and what's around them and who they are. And it's the mistakes are mine. I need to stay connected to the forces of teaching and not get stuck in my viewpoint and being tired of something or not wanting something. It does, you, you can't not have stuff just because you don't want it. Like you actually have to work <laughs> and put in the time and be a good instructor and be fair. You can't just wish it wasn't like this because that's just not how it goes. So my, my mistakes are always rooted in me getting stuck on me and forgetting that <laughs> that's just not how life works. So that, that's where we go. That's where my ego gets involved. I'm sure everybody can relate to that. You know, we're all sort of like that on some. Oh, yeah. 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 If anybody says that they don't feel you on that one, they are lying. They're lying. Yeah. <laughs> They're lying because we all feel like we deserve, you know, if we put a lot of work into dogs, damn it. You know, I put a lot of work into this. Why can't you just knock it off? 
it's like, well, because that's just not how it is. As Denise says, you train the dog in front of you. Your dog says right now that that's too close or that she doesn't know what you're asking or that she's too concerned with something. Like, you can't just get it because you deserve it. You just can't. But, but I apparently I'm going to continue to relearn this one uh, for the rest of my life. So I'm just saying. And then last question for you, where can our listeners find you? Everybody can find me. You know, if I had thought about the fact that social media would all have one conglomerating force in the future, I'd have thought about it, but I have different names everywhere. So here you go. (laughs) I'm Amy Cook PhD on TikTok, where we just have a whole lot of fun. I think everyone should be on TikTok. It's hilarious. And we have, we have great times there. Um, I am dog geek on Instagram, but that's linked everywhere. If you can't remember that, but dog geek, because I'm a big old geek about dogs. Um, And you can always find me at my own website, which is um, playwaydogs.com, which has all the information of where to find me everywhere. It has information about my Fenzy classes. Um, My classes right now are held at the Fenzy Dog Sports Academy um, only. So you can go to that one place and find everything I've got to offer. It's all through there. I do do like lives on all those different social media, you know, platforms. I like to go live and do a lot of teaching so you can if you haunt me you'll find me doing that kind of thing and then once COVID is over I'll be back on the road so I was actually um out doing live seminars every month in different places all over the country until we had to cancel everything so once that's back and I was thinking of doing it this fall but now with Delta I'm I'm not going to I'm not going to go out so um once we kind of get the international go ahead and I feel safe enough to do those things I'll be back out so if you want me to come to a city near you one only has to arrange it and I can come and I do a two day, I do a whole two day seminar on the playway and we get, we get dogs out and we play with them in real time and we um, see transformations in front of our eyes. And it's really, it's really great. So I can't wait to start doing that again, but that's not ready yet. But if you haunt me on any of the medias, you'll get, you know, sign up for the newsletter, that kind of thing. You'll, you'll get all that information. And I would happily send it out. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Amy, for appearing on our podcast. I, I honestly feel like you're a really big like get for the Dog Readyville <laughs> podcast, you know? <laughs> well, I'm just me. Um, but, you know, hopefully your listeners don't mind a two hour long podcast. It's never safe to start talking with me. It never is. It's always going to be too long. So hopefully there, we still have the listeners here with us. Thank you for your diehards who, and who, who, who stick with. And, and really, thank you for having me. I love the opportunity to explain this stuff. I really, I'm just a one you know person operation as far as teaching the world the system and so for right now i you know i i want everyone to know about it and so i really thank you for the opportunity to get it in front of your listeners that was that was really generous of you thank you so much thanks for listening to the dogaritaville yappy hour we hope you enjoyed your time unleashing and unwinding with our special guest you can support the dogaritaville podcast by leaving us a review on apple podcasts following us on Instagram, and becoming a member on patreon.com slash doggeritaville. Email your questions to us at doggeritaville at gmail.com, which is also where you can send your ideas for episodes or margarita themes. And until next time, give your dog a treat from us.